Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. As Christians, we must recognize that we are called to live differently. Not to separate our lives from the world, and not to like assimilate and just do whatever the world does, but to live differently, to be salt and light in the world, pointing others to Jesus. And something that I don't want us to jump over in all of this is that as a Christian, if you are here today and you've put your faith in Jesus, you are an exile. You are what Peter is describing here, that we're living in a place that is not our final home, as Graham said. And if you're not a Christian today, the goodness of God is that he is inviting you to come to know him, to put your faith in him, to find something greater than this world. As we dive into our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, the context here is that Peter is talk, 1 Peter is to Christians living as exiles. Their lives have been changed by Jesus. And so the question comes up, how do they live that out when it's uncommon, when it's unpopular, or even seen as backwards, right? And that can sound familiar for us today. Following Jesus can be uncommon, unpopular, and can even be seen as, you're a moron, why would you do that? It can be seen as backwards. And so the question is, what does real life, day in, day out, Christianity look like? And Peter points to the reality of being in exile, that, hey, you're different, so live differently. We're gonna start reading um, chapter three in verse eight, and he starts off by saying, finally, all of you, so what Peter is doing, he's kind of wrapping up this section. He's talked, he's, if you've been with us for um, the, the previous weeks, um, he said, hey, those of you, you exiles, submit to authority. He talked to the servants. Then we talked about husbands and wives. And so all these different kind of categories. And so he's saying, hey, make sure now that you're hearing, I'm speaking to everyone. Finally, all of you. So Peter's wrapping this up, making it clear. This applies to everyone. Um, this microphone seems really loud and ringy up here. If you can maybe, I don't know, it's maybe in the monitor. You could pull it out of the monitor maybe. All right, sorry, that's not in my notes. So, you know, just, uh. all right, First Peter chapter three, we're gonna read verses eight through 22. Here's what it says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. God, would you open our hearts to understand your word? Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Let our attitude and our response be yes to whatever you're doing in our lives. We acknowledge this morning, God, we need you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we just read, and if there's a lot there that you're like, what is going on? Good, good questions, and we're going to try to get to that as best we can, all right? Um, So you've probably heard of the concept of fight or flight, right? It's a term from psychology. It has to do with how we respond to stress or fear, right? You either fight, like someone like startles you, you either punch them in the face or you run. Like you're one of those, I don't know, which person you are. Right, so show of hands, how many of you are like, hey, I'm the fight person? Anybody want to acknowledge? Anybody like, I'm the flight person, like I'm going to run, right? I, I personally, um, I, I enjoy a combination of the two. Um, often um, when we lived in the States before we moved here, I would go and run, and we lived out in the country, and there was this one house where these like terrifying dogs would always bark and come after you while you're running. Now, what I would always do, what I started doing is I would pick up a couple rocks, okay? Now, if you're a dog lover just be patient with me, right? I would pick up a couple rocks and I would come around and they would start barking and running at me and I would throw a rock in their general direction, right? So I'm fight, but I'm also still running. So I'm doing both, fight and flight, right? And, and after a while, I trained them. All, I didn't even have to have, have, have to have a rock. If I just raised my arm up, they'd turn and run back to their house. So, um, you know, uh, and if, if you have problems with me throwing uh, rocks at dogs, please email me at uh, dylanpentecost at gmail.com and we'll go from there. So, I never harmed them, I just made sure they didn't like harm me, right? Um, So fight and flight, right? But in either case, like by nature, we tend towards one of these things. We either want to fight back or we want to withdraw fearfully. In both cases, we're really seeking self-preservation. That's a good thing in some ways. Like, you know, it's like kind of we're designed that way. But we're seeking self-preservation. So our passage today, though, calls us to something different. Rather than flight running away, or rather than fighting, instead we live like Jesus. We live for the blessing of others. The reality is, as Christians, we may suffer, but we have a hope in Jesus that goes beyond our suffering. This is so important for our lives, right? We're asking the question, how do we follow Jesus in a real time, in a real place, surrounded by real people, sometimes real suffering? How do we act? How do we react to people? How do we interact with others? What do we do when we're mocked or made fun of or simply just don't fit in? And the Bible has something to say to us this morning. And our main concept that we're going to be looking at this morning is this. Christian conduct may lead to suffering, but take heart, Christ is victorious. Christian conduct may lead to suffering, but take heart, Christ is victorious. And what, we've, what I've done with this passage is I was wrestling through it this week. Um, really, it kind of falls into three segments, and that, those segments of Scripture all correspond with these three main points, which are Christian conduct, suffering for doing good, and Christ is victorious, all right? So um, there's going to be some questions. You may have some questions in your mind. Um, 
We'll wrestle through these things together this morning. So, first point, looking at Christian conduct. This is in verses 8 through 12. I read this passage maybe a month ago, just kind of in my own time with the Lord. And when I came to verse 8, it just jumped off the page at me. And I actually took time, and I just read that one verse, and I took time to write some things. And it is such an important verse. And as exiles, this verse has so much to say about how we conduct our lives. And I actually considered preaching this whole sermon on one verse, but I didn't. I chose a bunch, right? So there we go. Let's look at verse 8 again. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, what's going on here? If you spend much time on social media, you will see that there is a ton of division amongst Christians. Everybody, but really a lot with Christians. There's anger and shaming and gossip and just straight up hatred and often based around someone's theological opinion or political opinion or parenting method or worship preference and the list just goes on and on. But when we look at verses 8 and then 9, these are the opposite of what happens in the dumpster fire of social media sometimes. It has us good things too, but you know. Because verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So for asking the questions, how are we to live as Christians, as exiles? It's like this. This is the picture of our conduct. Let's walk through some of these things he says here. He says, unity of mind. What's that mean? We are unified as the people of God around the saving grace of Jesus. That as Christians, we're on the same team, quote unquote, right? So Paul's talking to the believers. He's saying, hey, listen, as you're interacting, interact this way within the church. We are called to unity, to oneness of mind. And we've said this before, not uniformity where we're all just identical and robotic, but we have a realization that we're all in the same boat. We are broken sinners rescued by the grace of Jesus. And this is where our unity of mind can come from. Rather than, you know, fighting, with, fighting within, we have unity of mind. Secondly, he says sympathy. And that word really means to feel with. And when we're tempted to argue or to react to someone or to write that comment that really sets someone straight, may we remember sympathy, to have grace towards others. I think sympathy is the willingness to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Man, as Christians, we must have sympathy towards one another even when we disagree. He goes on, says brotherly love, and this is pretty self-explanatory. It's saying, hey, we love each other in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ because in Christ we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Brotherly love, caring for each other, having each other's backs. He says a tender heart, This carries the idea of compassion, a compassionate heart. And this is the opposite of um, a hardened, self-righteous, uncaring heart. Having a tender heart towards others is treating them in the way that God has treated us. Scripture says God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And when we have a tender heart, we interact with people that way. And then finally, he says a humble mind. When we interact with others thinking that we have it all figured out and we know everything, well, we're not living with a humble mind. A humble mind recognizes that it may not know everything. Actually, it doesn't know everything, right? 
It might be wrong sometimes, right? You know, sometimes the most difficult words to say was, I was wrong and you were right. Anybody have trouble with those? I mean, yeah. And this is true humility. He says humbleness of mind, a humble mind. It's true humility that has to come from our heart. It's not something you can fake. If you try to fake it, it seems, you, it's obvious that it's fake. But humility that comes from our heart, humble mind. And Peter continues in verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Verse 8, I believe he's speaking to those in the church. Hey, in the church, treat each other this way. Verse 9, he's shifting a bit and saying, hey, this is the way you interact with those around you who aren't in the church. When evil comes against you, when someone reviles you and mocks you, how are you responding? Our flesh wants to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. Peter says, don't do this. Remember, you're different. On the contrary, our calling as Christians, he says, for to this you were called to bless. Our calling is to be a blessing to others, pointing them to Jesus. And this is similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who sin against you. This is not natural to us as humans. What's natural is, you're my enemy, get away from me. Leave me alone, I don't like you, you're my enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies. And Peter writes here, hey, don't give people payback for what you think they deserve. Because when Christians live like this, it is countercultural. It is upside down. It's the opposite of what is the default mode for our flesh and the default mode for everyone around us. Let's continue in these verses. In verses 10 through 12, um, in my Bible, it kind of changes, the, the words themselves straight change um, like a format, like the, the, whatever that is, the formatting changes. It's because Peter is quoting from Psalm 34. And he's kind of giving the reason here. He's reinforcing what he has said in verses 8 and 9 by saying uh, in Psalm 34 that reminds us why and how we live this out. He says, we keep our tongues from evil and speaking lies. We turn away from evil and do good. We seek peace with others. In verse 12, he reminds us, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, that he sees and knows our lives. Therefore, we live with an awe of him, a proper understanding of our relationship to God. And when that is true and when that is right in our lives, it enables us to live out this passage, to love people because we've been loved by God. And the point here that Peter is getting to is that our conduct as Christians matters. The way we interact with each other matters. And the way we interact with non-believers, with those who have not put their faith in Jesus, matters. And really, this, this whole segment is meant to be applied to our lives. It's very clear. Hey, live this way. It's telling us a way to live, to conduct ourselves. But I want to point out a few things um, to, to clarify. First thing is this, Christian conduct starts with repentance. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, let him turn away from evil and do good. This is the concept of repentance. To repent is to turn away from sin. If we are to live the lives that Jesus is calling us to, we will regularly, daily live a life of repentance. And this word, repentance, can feel like a big, scary word. It can feel like, but in reality, it's simply trading the filthy rags of our sin for the joy of Christ. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, he's known for saying, all of life is repentance. What was he talking about? It's this, a heart of repentance is something that's just like every day. 
saying, I turn away from myself, my sin, my flesh. I turn away from it, and I turn to Jesus. Daily turning away from evil to do good, away from sin towards God. I think one of the things that Peter is trying to communicate here is that inner change, the change that happens in our hearts, is the way, the means to being a blessing. He's getting at that here. In verse, in verse 9, he says, Bless, for to this you would call that you may obtain a blessing. The way that we are a blessing, the way that we are salt and light to this world is when our hearts are changed, which is daily laying down our lives before Jesus. So, Christian conduct starts with repentance. Secondly, I just want us to pause for a minute and just consider our conduct. Look back at what Peter calls us to do here. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and so on. How are you interacting with others? How are you reacting to things that people say to you? How are you interacting online? How are you speaking to your friends, to your spouse, to your kids? And the reality here is every single one of us needs Jesus. Because Peter's not saying, hey, here's a list that you just be really good. Be nice. Be nice people. No. We need Jesus changing our hearts and it overflows in how we live and act with others. We need his work in us, working itself out in our conduct. All right, so let's move on to our next point. As we look at this idea, Christian conduct may lead to suffering, but take heart. Christ is victorious. The next segment is verses 13 through 17. And he's talking about suffering for doing good. Now, over the next few weeks in 1 Peter, the topic of suffering is going to come up multiple times. And in this segment, Peter is specifically looking at how Christians may suffer precisely because of their good conduct. He says that in verse 17. He's like, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That makes sense to us, right? If I go commit a crime, I deserve to like deal with that crime and deal with the suffering of that crime. I suffer for doing evil. Like we kind of get that. But he's saying, listen, you may suffer for doing what's right as, as followers of Jesus, He's writing to teach us and encourage these believers that what they are facing is not something strange, but really that Jesus has been through the same thing. He starts in verses 13 and 14. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's saying, Who is there to fear? If you're seeking to do what is good. In other words, if you are living in this world in an honorable way, doing what is right, then what do you have to fear? And he continues with, even if, even if you suffer, he says, don't be afraid. This sounds a bit like Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, where Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? 
Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And Peter is bringing courage to these believers who were dealing with real persecution, were dealing with real pressures from within and from without. He's telling them, in Christ, you have nothing to fear. He says, have no fear of them. In verse, but, in, but in verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love how he starts there. He says, don't, don't have fear. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. As I said a moment ago, that inner change that needs to happen in us is the starting point. He goes back to that and saying, hey, when the pressure comes, when you are suffering, when you're seeking to do what's right and you face the consequences of it, first, go back to the point where you are honoring Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. Because the truth is we can endure suffering only when we honor Christ as king in our hearts. Enduring suffering always starts in our heart. We think about, what's he talking about there? What's the picture there? Well, we know from John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. I think that's what it means. As we go through the suffering, as we go through the trial, as we go through the turmoil, as we go through the stress, that we're able to stop and find refuge in the Lord, abiding in Christ. The chaos is going all around us, but we're able to stop and say, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I am laying down my life. I'm saying, okay, Jesus, I don't know what's going on, but, I, but I'm running to you right now. It means that we find strength in the Lord. There's a slightly obscure passage in 1 Samuel where King David has enemies attacking him and his own like people are against him and he's got all this stuff going on. There's one little line that says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And I love that because when we're in the middle of all the stuff and the stress and the chaos and the anxiety and all these things, we, can, we have the freedom to stop and say, Jesus, I need to run to you, to find my strength in you, to abide in you, to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have no fear, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, always be prepared to give an answer, a defense. He uses the word defense here. It's not necessarily the idea of being defensive. It's more the, the idea of just response or answer. The reality is we can live in such a way that prompts other people to say, why? That as we put Christ first in our hearts, in the midst of suffering, it will be noticed. And this is a beautiful thing, that when we live with the conduct of Jesus, it might draw mocking and reviling, and we might have suffering. But for others, it will stir deep questions. People will want to know, what is it that makes you tick? And this opens the door for us as God's people to speak the gospel to others, sharing what has changed our hearts and what gives us hope. And Peter reminds us, and I love this, it reminds us to do this with gentleness and respect. What's that mean? It means that we're not shoving our beliefs down people's throats. We're not hiding behind a corner and literally throwing New Testaments at people and hitting them. No, we are lovingly, humbly, gently sharing what Jesus has done in our hearts. And why? Why is the posture humble? Why is the, hum why is the posture with gentleness and respect? Here's why. When you and I truly grasp the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and the weight of the gospel in our hearts, 
our hearts will get all squishy and soft anytime we talk about it because it is so dear to us, because it has rescued us. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. It's like, hey, when we share the gospel with others, it's not this just like salvation missile that we're launching at someone. It is coming from a place of our hearts with so much gentleness and so much humility because the way that Christ has dealt with us and we can't help but share, oh, God is so good. He's rescued me out of my sin. And people say, why do you live with this way? Why do you put up with someone mocking you? Why do you deal with this? And we say, oh, because I have hope that goes beyond this world. Jesus has rescued me. And so we can be prepared to give an answer. We can think through, how will I answer people? When they ask why I do what I do, Peter says that. Be prepared. Think about it. Spend time saying, if somebody asks me why I'm smiling, what am I going to say to them? If someone asks me why I'm not stressed out when everyone else is, what am I going to say to them? And it's, it's, it's good. Peter's telling us, think through that. Be prepared. You can think through, how do I share with someone what Christ has done in my heart? It's good to take the time to kind of put some thought and some words into that. So again, Peter's talking here about suffering for doing good. And I put some, I thought about that a bit this week. What could that look like for us? And I want to acknowledge too, like suffering is a continuum, right? There are people like enduring extreme physical suffering, emotional suffering for their faith in Jesus. And on the other end, there are people dealing with other things that are, that are difficult, but there's, there's a continuum of suffering. So I want to acknowledge that. But let's think about it kind of in our day-to-day lives here. What if you suffer because you don't cut corners at work and it means that you don't actually get the raise or the promotion that you could have gotten otherwise? You're doing what's right and you have to deal with the consequences of that, but you're doing what's right. Maybe you live out your faith and you get mocked or made fun of. You're suffering for doing what you know you should be doing. Maybe you know that the right thing to do is to give generously to those in need. And, and, but the backside of that is, is that you have to say, you know what, I, I'm not going to be like everybody else. I'm going to think differently about my possessions or about my vacations or about this or that because I'm willing to give generously. Maybe you know it's right not to cheat at school and so you don't cheat and therefore you don't get the best grade. Now again, that seems minor when there are people dealing with real physical suffering, but I'm trying to bring this down to earth for us in our daily lives. Maybe you don't retaliate and you actually feel like you kind of get taken advantage of. Maybe you hold your tongue and you don't get the privilege of the last word, right? We like that, or the last comment. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I want to seek purity in all things, And it means that, you know what, I actually don't know all the current movies and music and all the in things. And there's a whole lot more examples, but here's the point. When we live like Jesus, we may suffer for it. And again, there's more extreme examples. You could be in a scenario, and there are places all over this world where when someone speaks of Jesus or shares the gospel or preaches the gospel, they face real, physical, immediate consequences And Peter's message would be the same, fear not. Fear not, the Lord is with you. God is at work even in our suffering. And our next segment of scripture here is gonna tell us why 
we can endure suffering. Point number three, Christ is victorious. This is verses 18 through 20. Now, here's the good news. This segment of scripture is known to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament to interpret. So that's cool, right? Um, Again, to quote Martin Luther, um, this is what Martin Luther said about this passage. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. I feel like I'm, I'm thankful to be in good company with the, uh, the good Martin Luther this morning, right? It's, it's kind of, if you heard me, if you were listening when I was reading it, it's kind of obscure. It's a big long passage and it's like two sentences with like 15 commas, right? So it's just like, what is happening here? We're going to do our best to walk through it this morning. So verse 18 though, here's what the main thing we want to see. Peter tells us why we can endure suffering. He says, for, relating to what was just ahead of that, he says, endure suffering, for Christ also suffered once for, the, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What Peter is communicating is here is, hey, you can endure suffering because Christ has already gone before you. Christ has endured suffering on our behalf. And we see the truth of the gospel here, what Christ has done for us. To, he suffered on the cross to rescue us out of our sin and brokenness. We look at verses 19 through 21, and it kind of goes into this thing, he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And so he's he's calling back to the time of Noah. And if you know Genesis chapter 6, the time of Noah, there was evil on the earth and things were kind of going crazy, and the flood came. Noah builds an ark, right, a boat, and who, the, the people on the ark were Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. So there were eight people. That's what it's referring to. There were eight people that went into the ark and God rescued them. And it's a picture of salvation. So the main point here is this, that Christ has died for our sins and is victorious. And we see that in verse 22. Verse 22, talking about Jesus again, said, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ is victorious. And I believe that what Peter's getting at here is that in the same way that God preserved the few, talking about Noah and his family, God preserves his people as exiles in this world. And the flood, in the picture, in the in the story of Genesis, in the, the time of Genesis, Peter's bringing it in here to, to this passage today. The flood is a picture of baptism, which saves us in the sense that is the outflowing of the saving work of Christ. I think Peter is encouraging these exiles that as baptized believers, God will rescue them also. Remember the context. They are exiles living in a place dealing with all kinds of pressures. And Peter is coming along and saying, hey, you're going to suffer. But remember, Christ suffered and Christ is victorious. He's going to preserve you. Let's clarify a few things. And I don't claim to know exactly the interpretation of this passage. So me and Martin Luther hanging out over here, right? Let's clarify a few things. Again, I think that the main thing to see here is that Christ is victorious over all things. As verse 22 wraps that up, he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ is victorious. And this is what motivates us 
and gives us the courage to endure suffering. As I was reading and studying and and, and learning about this, that seems like the most accurate way to say, here's what's happening in this. Even though the, the phrasing seems a little complicated, this is what the point was. Now, there's one more confusing thing in here. In verse 21, Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? Baptism now saves you. If you've been around here with us or been around the church, baptism's really important to us. But we always clearly say, baptism does not save you. Okay, well, Peter, what are you talking about here? If you take this out of context, it is confusing. It could lead someone to think that a physical baptism in water is what saves you. But when we look at the bigger picture here, what Peter's communicating is that baptism is connected to our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save us. So Peter even says it here. He says, hey, it's not as a, it doesn't save you as like this physical thing that removes dirt from your body. No, he says it's an appeal to God for the cleaning of our conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter is saying, listen, baptism is a natural outflow when your heart is given to Jesus. And we would say the same thing, that when someone puts their faith in Jesus, that baptism is that outward picture of the rescuing, saving work of Jesus in our hearts. And so for Peter to say, baptism which now saves you, he wasn't separating it from someone surrendering their life to Jesus. He was connecting those two and saying, listen, one leads to the other naturally. The work of Christ in our hearts rescues us and saves us, and baptism is a picture of that. So a couple of notes to apply this as we wrap up. First is this. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're going through, if you're seeking to live in a way that honors God and you are dealing with mocking in your job or in your school, if people are making fun of you or people are like, you're such a weirdo, I don't know what it is. Or if you're suffering in other ways, take heart. Peter is reminding us, take heart. Have courage. Whatever you are facing right now, in whatever way you are suffering, take heart. If you're suffering because of foolish and sinful choices, which is possible, we all know that, If that's you, then the invitation from Jesus is to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, to repent, to run back to him if you are suffering for foolish and sinful choices. If you're suffering for doing good, then take heart. Fear not. As exiles, we can remember we are part of the few. As he talked about Noah, how God rescued Noah and the few. We are part of those in this world who belong to Jesus that can remember that Christ is victorious, that we have an eternal hope. So take heart. Secondly, the reminder of baptism, and this is timely for us, and we're excited because next Sunday we will celebrate baptisms here at Renaissance as a church as part of our service next Sunday morning. We're excited and looking forward to that because it is a picture of lives that have been changed by Jesus. And it's a public declaration that a person has put their faith in Jesus. And so I would invite you that you, if you have put your faith in Jesus and have never been baptized, I would love to talk with you after the service or this week, reach out to me. I would love to talk with you and talk through that with you. 
As we close, Christian conduct may lead to suffering, but take heart, Christ is victorious. As exiles, we can live knowing that Christ has been victorious over death and evil. He has the final word. And even if we suffer in this life, we know that our hope is in Jesus. If we suffer, let it be because we, lay, we have laid down our lives to love others, to bless others. That when other people observe our lives, even our suffering, they will want to know why and how we live the way we do. We can then answer with gentleness and respect, pointing them to Jesus. And all of this is a result of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. I've used this term, the gospel, and maybe you're familiar with it or maybe you're not, but the message of the gospel is this, is that every single one of us are separated from God because of our sin. We have no way to fix ourselves, no way to save ourselves. We can't be good enough, work hard enough, be generous enough. We are stuck in our sin. But God, in his love for you and I, sent his own son, Jesus, and Jesus came to earth, became human, and lived a sinless and perfect life. We were unable to do that, but Jesus did that. He then sacrificially gave his life on the cross to pay for our sin. And he rose from the dead, showing that death and evil is over, has no victory. Verse 18, again, what we already said, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus came to bring us to God. And the reality is today that you can be in relationship with God. You can be drawn near to God where God no longer looks at you and sees your sin and your brokenness, but he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus because when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe. We're saying, Jesus, I have no other way to get to God, but I believe that what Jesus did on the cross can be applied to me. I don't deserve it. By God's grace, we exchange our sin for God's holiness in our lives. And this is for you. This is for me. This is for the world around us. And this is the only way that we live out this Christian conduct is through Jesus. Because we can believe the gospel and then we can forget the gospel and say, okay, Jesus has saved me, but yeah, I gotta work really hard and be really good. I gotta do it in my own strength and power. But the gospel says, no, you can't accomplish it on your own. You need Jesus in you, animating and bringing life to you so that it overflows out of you. And finally, as Peter wrote, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, and he goes on and says, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Why? Why can we do that? Well, if you go backwards just a little bit, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Naomi, you can come on up. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Sound familiar? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
Christ has done all of this on our behalf. He has shown us how to live. He has shown us how to react in grace and in love rather than in reviling and mocking and evil. We can look around and the world seems dark. I was with Graham and uh, Dwayne, I think, the other day, and Graham said, this was Friday, we were doing food bank stuff, and he said, well, the world's on fire. (laughs) And we can feel that. It seems like things are falling apart at times, and we're tempted to just kind of hide, keep our heads down, and yet Christ is victorious. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So we put our hope in Jesus. And in him we find strength to keep going, to endure. So my encouragement to you today is to rest in that today. Remember that. Take heart. Repent if there's sin you need to repent of. If you need to put your faith in Jesus, we would love to talk with you. That he loves you. Think about that truth, that fact that God loves you and he is inviting you to come near to him. This is not a place where we come to perform or to show that we've lived a good life. It's a place where we come and say, we need the rescue of Jesus and we've got nothing else. As we continue in worship, let's remember this invitation of Jesus towards us. Let's remember those places where we are We're going through it. But this song that we're going to sing reminds us, it says, oh, my soul, put your hope in God. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.